Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. And welcome to another episode of the Seven Things EMS podcast. I'm your host, Dan Limmer. We are incredibly fortunate uh, here today uh, with Dr. Mike uh, Loria. Mike is going to be talking about seven things he's learned in his uh, military and civilian EMS careers. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Mike has a a great career and story uh, coming from fire and EMS going into the military. Uh, The elite pararescue part of the Air Force gave him some insights that I think we can apply to civilian EMS. Um, Went back into paramedicine, flight paramedic, and then med school. He's completing an EMS fellowship, going into a critical care fellowship. We cannot, Mike, call you an underachiever in any way. And we're looking forward to uh, hearing some of your insights. Our motto here is to go into it and start with the uh, seven things pretty quickly. But I want to say welcome. Oh, I thank you very much for having me. I think it... You know, the, uh, the, the lack of underachieving really stems from a baseline chemical imbalance like uh, many of us <laughs> in fire EMS. So, Yes, we do. And many of us put it to, uh, to good use, uh, which I think people will be able to do today with these seven things. So let's start. The first one is to embrace the gray. I'm going to go for the whole thing and let you fill this in, but learn to live in the area between the lines of your clinical guidelines. Be comfortable making decisions in the setting of uncertainty and managing that gray. All right, to you. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something I don't think they ever taught me in paramedic school or uh, or EMT class or just about anything else, but it's so fundamentally important to what we do because the design and setup a lot of the times in, in academics and training is getting people to understand fundamental um, principles of emergency medical care outside the hospital. And we focus on guidelines and protocols and a lot of the tests are designed around scenarios that are relatively simple and straightforward for very clear and good purposes. But I think we've all found ourselves, you know, the first week, the first month, the first year or two of our career, uh, and you have patients that like overlap like five different guidelines. There's no real clear answer to what's going on. They're not giving you clear-cut information. Um, family members are often, you know, not they're sometimes helpful, but sometimes not. Um, and that, you know, what I tell people is really where we make our money, where we do a good job is in resuscitative, emergent resuscitative skills in the field and managing this gray. Because what we actually do on a, on a daily basis is um, working between the lines of those guidelines because the guidelines are written in black and white. They're on paper, you know, they used to be on paper. Now they're all in PDF format. Uh, but uh, a lot of the times what we're doing is in real life is this thousand shades of gray in between the black and white of the protocols and getting comfortable with that. Uh, in the military, we say, you know, get uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable because as, you know, patients don't necessarily read the book 
and being able to sift through and decide on what to do can be really, 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 really challenging sometimes. And sometimes, kind of like I said in that little blurb, is, is a matter of uh, there's no clear or obvious correct decision. Making a decision and then seeing what happens. If the clinical interventions don't help or the patient, there's always a chance the patient might get worse, reassessing things on the fly and coming up with a different plan and changing course. So being comfortable with that, I think, is in and of itself one of the things that you know I wish I had uh, worked on earlier in my career and was certainly one of the things that nobody really prepared me for. I think it's an important message. Now, I'm going to ask you for an example. I'm going to say a couple things that give you some time to think about maybe something that you experienced in your practice uh, recently. But I think coming from this, we're coming from a relatively young profession. People still argue about whether EMS does any diagnosis. You know, we came from uh, curricula, which weren't the most robust. And we're even struggling with the role of EMS right now as we record this about whether we're healthcare, ultimately, or public safety. And I think that we lose some clinical thinking. I think we lose some clinical mojo in that fight. But the truth is, is that it all comes down. And in Tintinale, um, I, I read uh, in some one of the chapters, someone said that emergency medicine is 90% in the cognitive domain, that it's about thinking, and that it's about that decision making. So I just uh, I think that this is a great start that people need to be aware of the fact that they are going to have to think uh, outside the lines to be able to be effective and that is an okay and a safe place to be and it's not a perfect world. So can you think of anything between your military and uh, and uh, physician or EMS world a case that might kind of put this together? Um that's a really good question. And in, uh, in particular, you know, I can think of a couple sort of mini examples. The, the example that I give people on the street, which seems to be a, um, a very common, uh, a, a common problem recently is, um, for example, the patient who has shortness of breath. They have a history of CHF and they also have a history of COPD. Um, two very different treatment pathways, right? Uh, with one common presentation, the patient says that they're short of breath, not feeling very well. Um, and often some of the signs and symptoms of these two disease processes can be overlapping or there can be the presence of both, right? So how do you decide which to do? Are they, is this a COPD, is this acute COPD exacerbation or is this uh, an acute exacerbation of their underlying heart failure? Now, in the emergency department or the, uh, or the hospital setting, we have tons of diagnostic tests that we can do to uh, clarify that, to elucidate that, and to provide the correct treatment pathway. But when you're presented with someone who's really short of breath, you know, a common pathway might be giving them both oxygen, for example, um, and perhaps a common pathway might be uh, providing them positive pressure. But outside of that, some of the medications, as we know, are very different. And how do you decide what to do? Sometimes it's the nuances of the history. Sometimes you don't get those nuances of the history. And sometimes what it comes down to is 
um, going with your uh, clinical gestalt, your recognition prime decision making of how does this patient present to me, which do I really think it is uh, in the setting of all of the information as I'm getting as a whole, and you go down one treatment pathway. And we've certainly been tricked, even in the emergency department, and I've been tricked in the field to, it sounds very much like a COPD exacerbation. They're coughing more, it sounds like they're producing some more sputum, they've had multiple COPD exacerbations recently, and it turns out it's their heart failure, right? But um, in going down one of those treatment pathways, assessing it and seeing how the intervention is working and potentially trying the other, depending upon how it's going. So there's, there's, I think there's a lot of clinical situations like that where it's unclear what's driving this process and weeding out exactly what it is may not completely may not be possible in the field and sort of just getting comfortable with the fact that, you know, I don't have enough diagnostics to figure it out, but I think this is what's going on. I'm going to try that. If it doesn't work, I'm going to change course. Um, so that's one, I would say, very common civilian example on the EMS side. No, I think, and I think that what you've said, I think there are people listening to this right now thinking, well, that's easy for a doc to say, but EMS people, I think, still need to get the education, the pathophysiology and understanding of disease processes, and then put those together to make the mojo to make that decision. And I think, like I said, in the growing profession, I think there are some people that listen to this. Now, for the record, I fully agree that that's the way a clinician thinks. And in the field, we need to be clinicians, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. But some people are going to say, well, what if I get it wrong? What if I do it? And I think some of the things we do when we teach that there's only one condition, we only take one at a time, and that we don't put that up uh, as a situation that one, it could be more than one thing. And two, your decision might not be perfect or could be wrong. Mm -hmm. But if we document our thought process and do it, um, we need to embrace that. I, I think that's awesome. Well, let's roll into number two. Based on that, we talked a little bit about stress, but stressful situations. Know that your cognitive and technical faculties will deteriorate under stress. We have to mitigate this and then train uh, technical skills with that in mind. I was a police officer for 20 years. There's times I was in situations that were a little, a little hairy. And then later somebody would say to me, I was yelling at you, what was in his hand, and I couldn't hear it. You know, our senses um, don't always respond well under stress. But if we know, I think you're saying, if we know about that, we can deal with it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think it's, this is also a disservice that we do to any anybody who works under these conditions, law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, military, unless we talk about this stuff, I really think we're doing a, a disservice to people. And of course, this is my soapbox. So forgive me if I kind of if I kind of go off on this one. But what, we, what we really, <laughs> yeah, thank you. What we really don't um, tell people what we really don't explain, or uh, I think even at the most uh, basic levels is uh, to people is that under very stressful situations, when you perceive that it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what to do here. Um, and maybe it's like a pediatric cardiac arrest. And you're like, oh my gosh, his parents are here. Um, I haven't, I haven't run a pediatric cardiac arrest yet. I remember pals vaguely, but I haven't done one in two years. Um, that sense that your faculties are not going to be enough to meet the demands of the situation 
um, or that something is unclear, uncertain, potentially threatening to you, um, generates this, we believe, generates this stress response. And the key thing to remember is for the longest time, I thought it was just about it changes how I feel. Like I get a little stressed out, it changes how I feel about things. But what is so important to remember is that state fundamentally changes our brain chemistry and electrophysiology. And the extension of that is it changes everything from our hemodynamics, our heart rate, our heart rate variability, our, our peripheral vascular resistance and our cardiac output to the sensory perception that you talked about. People getting what we call, at least in the, the human factors engineering world, is, um, is increased selectivity or that tunnel vision, uh, auditory exclusion, which is the example you gave. And there's, there's tons of examples of that in the world of aviation, NASA, the military, fire rescue. Someone says something. In fact, sometimes they're screaming at you. Sometimes you're even saying, uh-huh, okay, but you're not processing that information that they're telling you. These are all super, 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 super common per, uh, um, perceptual changes, as well as uh, different behavioral aspects. So we have what's called uh, cognitive perseveration or, or the sometimes called the broken record effect. So if you ever seen like a new paramedic, they're going to intubate someone and whether they're using VL or DL or whatever they're doing, they're just kind of fishing around in the mouth um, with the blade and you're like, hey, tell me what you see. And they're like, uh, uh, and they're just kind of like moving the laryngoscope around with no specific goal-directed behavior, it's because their brain is not necessarily able to solve novel problems, find new solutions to the problem that's presented to them. And if they don't know what to do, they just default over and over again to what they do know how to do or what they think they know how to do. And so there's all of these changes that occur when you're very stressed out. I think there is relatively good evidence that suggests that if you train appropriately, you can actually, and, and understand that, you can adapt to those effects, right? You can actually perform better, more precisely, maintain some of those cognitive and technical faculties, even at higher levels of stress. And um, I think it starts with just presenting this information. In fact, there's some data that suggests that just by adjusting people's expectations, that um, that they perform better. And that kind of matches my experience and the experience of a lot of people I talked to. I used to think I was stupid because, you know, like I, I, I knew the dose, you know, of cardiac epinephrine or, or cardiac epinephrine and cardiac arrest, or I knew the dose of some fundamental, very simple, straightforward medication. Easy. If you and I were talking and you started grilling me, no problem. Bam, I'm throwing out answers. There you are in the back of the ambulance at two in the morning, tired, half awake, and someone's super, super sick. And it was like the information like evaporated from my brain. And I just thought that I was stupid or, or, or dumb. And in fact, that it's, it's not the case. It's a very common uh, effect of, uh, of stress on your ability to retrieve information from long-term memory. Uh, and it wasn't until someone explained that to me, it's like, oh, it's totally normal. It happens to everybody, very common. Doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how experienced you are. Uh, a lot of these effects persist um, and, uh, and they, can, they can affect you. And when people understand that, I think that that's step one to solving the problem. is like, okay, it's, it's normal. And when you normalize it, then you, can, um, then you can begin adapt and train to it. And a lot of that adaptation and training takes on very, very, um, very uh, diverse and uh, different ways of, of applying that. So number one, applying, you know, even in didactics, teaching, whether it's a whiteboard or whether it's PowerPoint, understanding how people learn and how people retrieve information and simplifying as best we can concept, complex 
concepts so that people can actually retrieve it better or easier. The way that we actually develop um, simulation train, the way that we develop um, hands-on training table to all the, the various ways that we uh, apply and execute our educational modalities across the spectrum combined with a host of other things, whether that's um, psychological skills, you know, training like you're essentially an athlete, um, training uh, and understanding some of those, uh, some of the sports psychology and performance psychology that is very common in other domains to developing systems to actually, um, uh, to make that, to decrease the cognitive load, to make everything simpler uh, and more achievable under those stressful situations, to finally uh, coming up with ways to actually push people, to challenge them, to, to get them to understand how they respond in these stressful situations, and then give them the opportunity through simulation and other training to actually, um, to actually test out some of those skills, come up with their own personal way of adapting to it and dealing with it and then continually challenging them continually making it harder for them so they they're always having to push themselves a little bit outside of their comfort zone so it's i, I think it's absolutely critical it is something that we don't talk about enough and it is something that uh, we can absolutely address and i think it's ultimately human and knowing that is uh, is important and i think we're going to number three um, there's an old saying is, uh, don't just do something, stand there. Maybe that kind of goes into that, but learn when to act and when to step back and think. Sometimes you have to act, but other times it's better to sit back. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is probably one of the, the, the skills that I still have to work on the most, even in the hospital. When I'm flying and you know landing on a scene call or I'm going into an outside hospital or in my hospital, this is still one of the things that that uh, that uh, I still have to work on the most. And uh, again, I think we're taught uh, a lot of the time to act based upon a lot of these guidelines. But as I mentioned before, a lot of things are unclear and we sort of maintain a lot of our career in this gray area in between the guidelines. Knowing when it's appropriate to act immediately, knowing when you can try a couple things and seeing how it goes, or knowing when actually like you're probably more likely to screw something up with somebody because right now they're doing okay and the enemy of okay is trying to make it better that is really really hard and i think it um there are various cognitive frameworks that have been uh that have been applied under these circumstances so for example knowing when to act when something, when a system is completely out of control or spiraling out of control or going down the tube, so a great example is uh, a patient who had some significant facial trauma, you can't bag them, you can't oxygenate them, you can't ventilate them, uh, and this is in the setting of significant facial trauma. Really, that is like a, a situation where there's a stimulus, there's a, there's a very tight group of, um, uh, uh, or a very... A specific group of, of, of things that are lining up here, right? You can't ventilate them, you can't oxygenate them, and there's pretty significant damage or trauma to their mouth that would otherwise uh, prevent you from uh, more uh, traditionally non-invasive or invasive management of their airway. Um, this is the indication for a surgical brachytherotomy. And we always say that the, the, the threshold or the most difficult part is the decision to do it, right? Which is true in many, many ways. Yes, very and much so. so Exactly. But this is one of those, this is one of those instances where we train people like this is one of those times where don't 
don't overthink it. Don't try to like stick an eye gel in there five times into their mass, mashed up face. Don't, you know, spend, you know, if you could see some bubbles or something like that I talk about in the book, great. But, uh, you know, don't spend tons of time doing it. This is a very clear cut situation where you need to act, definitively need to act. Um, other situations, sort of these, these overwhelming chaotic situations, like you show up on the scene of a, a car accident and there's, you know, multiple injured people, multiple very severely injured people. Yes, you should stop and think and make sure the scene is safe and that you're not going to get hurt or your team's not going to get hurt. But this is the time to act. You got to get going. You got to start triaging these people, figure out who needs to, who needs immediate life-saving care, who can wait a little while, and then getting, getting assets moving so that we can get these people treated and triaged. As opposed to um, what I see from time to time, both in the field uh, as an EMS physician and um, also in the emergency department as EMS is coming in, is patients who are doing pretty well, but they think something is going on with them. So they've done a whole bunch of other stuff, um, you know, given them a whole bunch of nitroglycerin or gone down a treatment pathway. And now they're actually worse than they were before because they were trying to make it better. They were trying to follow that protocol. And if they just taken a second and like stop back and think it's like, actually, they're doing really well. Like they're doing okay. They're, um, they're oxygenating fine. They're ventilating fine. Their hemodynamics are perfect. Maybe the best thing at this point is just to transport them and continue to monitor them. And, and a part of that clinical decision-making process is saying the risk of doing some of these things, causing hypotension, causing additional issues, is actually higher than just kind of continuing to monitor them and, uh, and, and doing the other stuff. And I think that is really, really challenging, especially, I feel like, especially for me as a paramedic, because I want to do stuff, right? I want to, I want to make things better. I want to make it perfect. If the protocol says get them above like 92%, I'm going to get that patient saturation above 92%. Um, when sometimes it may be better just to take a step back. What's interesting, I think in that, and I totally agree, is that newer paramedics like to do stuff because they can. Mm -hmm. They'll say, well, gee, I, I did this. Why? Well, you know, because I could. Or, you know, uh, you go and you take a giant uh, angio or you're giving meds because you can, not because they're they're clinically warranted. I, and then when you get more experienced and you get this sense of maybe I will wait for a little bit the younger medics say, come on, let's do something. So I think that there's parts of this that come with experience and time that you have. I've seen this in, in ER physicians as well, that there's a certain part of this that also I think goes along with the place you are in your EMS or medical experience and perhaps even some of the examples you've had uh, as, you, as you do it. And uh, I think it's a great point. Now, when we get to number four, I'm going to take it to a certain point here, and then I'm going to have you jump in with the word. It says, Go for develop it. economy of motion. We like to say slow is smooth and smooth is fast. To this, you say, on your list says- Oh, total bullshit. <laughs> there we go. I was setting you up for that one. Yeah. Tell me, this is EMS. We don't have to sugarcoat things. Let's, let's tell that. Let's tell why. Yeah. So um, this is always something that I was taught both in the military and early on in my group. We were like, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And then I had this sort of epiphany one day. We were on the range and we were training with one of the uh, army special mission units. And uh, one of the other guys was like, oh, you know, take it easy. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And uh, he's like, that is the dumbest shit I have ever heard. That makes no sense, right? <laughs> that's like Ricky Bobby, like if you ain't first, you're last, right? That, that, that makes no sense. 
right? And we brought Ricky um, Bobby in here now. We've arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the ultimate, the uh, the gold standard for uh, uh, you know for intellectual one liners, uh, Talladega Nights, um, in true EMS fashion. Uh, the and, and it just it just didn't make sense to me. And you're like, oh, that actually it makes sense because if you think about it, like if if you're you know dying because you got stabbed or shot in the chest and you have a tension pneumothorax, do you want me to like go slow? Like, do you, do you want me to slowly do a finger thoracostomy or chest tube? I mean, the point we're trying to get across to people is that we don't want you to go so fast that you're rushing and screwing stuff up and making things worse. Dumping a patient, you know, you're, you're running, charging out to the ambulance with this patient, and then you dump them off the cot as you're running over the curb, or you're, you're rushing through things and drop all your equipment all over the place, or you miss key pieces of uh, clinical data, right? That's what we're trying to get across to people is... Take it easy. Don't rush it and make things worse. But in reality, we have to know that when it comes down to things, we can't always take our time. Like we actually have to perform quick, timely interventions under some the circumstances. When I say it's as slow as smooth, smooth as fasting, it's like driving your truck around in you know in second gear everywhere you want to go. That makes no sense, right? There are times when you have to shift up. There's times you have to shift down. There's times you have to go fast and times when it's more appropriate to slow down. And understanding that I think is very, very, very important um, because recognizing some of those times when you need to act emergently, those things had to be done quickly. They had to be done very, very smoothly. And so the, the term that I learned in the military I, that I think is a better way of uh, suggesting or getting to this very concept of don't rush it is economy of motion. Moving smoothly and efficiently so that we're saving time and not, uh, uh, and, and not taking too long and getting the interventions done we need, but not rushing it to the point where that we, we, we miss key pieces of information or um, we make mistakes because we're rushing and going so fast, if that makes sense. No, I think uh, one of the words that I've always used is is choreography, especially in the field. You might be in the upstairs, second or third floor. There's no elevator. You know, you've got a patient that's that's crashing or a patient even that's well. And as you make those decisions, everything has to come together almost in choreography. But that economy uh, of motion um, is important to think about from the beginning. It really does make a difference. And quite frankly, I think it goes really well with number three. That's why I like these things. They really kind of go together and build on each other because you take it easy uh, and sit back or there's other times that you really have to act. And I think that they go together um, yeah. you know, really, really well. Absolutely. hundred percent. Now, number five says effective technical and behavioral systems, SOPs, standardized equipment, procedures, um, I think that we're continuing right down a, a path here, and I think that it's we're starting to to look at a pattern here. So if you're standardized and you have SOPs, we've looked at behavioral things, and then personal habits, that there's a lot of this that comes from inside and also from having a good system in place that you can depend on when the shit hits the fan. Exactly. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think I kind of separated it out from um, from number two because when you're in these stressful situations and you're you're trying to think about all the stuff that's going on, you're sort of overwhelmed by the situation. Um, one of the one of the best things we can do is actually design systems, uh, uh, behavioral systems, or um, 
the way we set up our equipment um, or the way we set up our standard operating procedures. So that helps mitigate some of that. What we know is that when you do something very consistently the same way over and over again, whether it's approach to a patient, a patient assessment, whether that's, you know, setting up your intubation equipment, um, whatever it is that um, once that skill uh, becomes essentially automatic, we call it, we, I, I hate to use the term muscle memory, but we develop automaticity. Um, that is a very low cognitive load skill whatever it's doing. So if you set up your airway equipment the same time, every single way, um, so that you know that the first thing is your, your intubation, your, your, your tube and your stylet, and next to the right of that is your, your eye gel, your LMA, or your supraglottic airway, and then your OPAs and MPAs, and finally the Crite kit all the way to the right. You could do it blindfolded. You set it up the same way every time you're quick setting it up. You and your partner uh, know exactly where that equipment is because you do it the same way every time. So it actually provides some degree uh, of efficiency. And from a system standpoint, you know, I see all the time people have like an airway roll, and it's basically like a roll of all of the airway stuff with various size and whatnot. But that's not how you actually manage an airway, right? You're digging through like eight different tubes, and you're digging through like five different blades, and you're trying to find all the other stuff that's in the, it would be probably a better idea, for example, to organize it more in a fashion that uh, meets the needs of airway management for 90% of your patients and is organized in a fashion that flows with the natural natural progression of airway management as opposed to you put all the tubes on one side and then all the blades and then all the NPAs and then all the OPAs in various sizes, shapes, etc. Um, so I think that that's an example of a behavioral system, but also developing an equipment system that is, um, that is very helpful under those situations. I used to be really, really not for this. <laughs> and this is one of those things that I learned from the military about standardization and these systems that I think is helpful because you say, I'm smart. I can figure this out. Like I can, I can, I know, I know what airway equipment I want. I can find that airway equipment. But as it turns out, um, those cognitive faculties are compromised when you're stressed out. And um, the ability to standardize it so that everybody is on the same page, and it's not just you, the medic, or the doctor doing your thing, is so critical. That ability for a team to think ahead and know ahead and know that every single time to go to manage an airway or start an IV or whatever, it's the same kit, the same way, every single time is important. Uh, you also used to balk at this because people used to tell me in school, keep it simple, stupid, right? The, the KISS concept. And um, I bought that because I'm like, I'm not stupid. Like, I can figure this out. I'm smart enough to, to manage just about anything here. Well, that's not the case. Uh, what I like to tell people is keeping it simple is smart. Doing the thinking in advance, thinking through these systems and developing them to make things smooth and efficient, develop economy of motion, manage people's expectations so they know where everything is, they know how everything goes down, standardizing procedures, standardizing equipment setup, all of these things is actually very smart because it adapts the way you practice in the field to that very understanding of we're going to get stressed out. It's going to be very busy. There's going to be a lot of variables. It's going to be dark. The patient's going to be, you know, wet from being out in the rain and muddy. We're going to be, um, you know, trying to talk on the radio and tell the hospital what's going on while simultaneously having to try to manage a very complex patient. Uh, all of these things, that is a, I think, a very important um, solution or adaptation. I, I think it's it's fascinating. And I, I have to tell you, I, I listened to everything you said, but me, and there's probably some other people out there thinking, oh my goodness, these airway kits are dumb. I unzipper this big bag where I do the roll and all that stuff. 
when for most adults, you're going to use a certain blade and a certain tube. And then you're the next step. Okay. If that doesn't go, I'm going to have a rescue airway or whatever I'm going to do. But we do just kind of put everything in a blob. Um, it, it really is. That, that's the part that hit me the most is like, yeah, we do things the way they've been done. We're obviously very big on tradition. Our suppliers have a lot to do with it, but really you're, Every time you open that bag, there's a 90% chance you're going to reach for the same things, but we yep. don't put them in a place to make them work. Wow. All right. Now, and if you I look like at very, if I could oh, add so one more thing on that, and two. I think uh, um, these applications of, of this idea are uh, have begun to uh, take root in, in, in pre-hospital medicine and other places. So people who have had success with it, like there are various um, HEMS or helicopter EMS programs around the world. Uh, some of them have even gone as, uh, as far as to say, look, we are going to use one induction medication. We're going to, we're always going to use ketamine and we're going to, uh, and I'm not necessarily saying ketamine is the, the be all end all or everybody should use ketamine for induction. I'm just giving an example here. Um, they had, they decided that based upon their patient population and the work that they did, that they would just standardize it. So it's ketamine and rocuronium every time at the same concentration pre-drawn up into a syringe that they get from their pharmacy, which I get, I, I get is not always possible for some EMS organizations, but it's just the very concept that Here's a bunch of really smart anesthesiologists, emergency medicine physicians, and people from all over the world coming around to work in this one HEMS program overseas. And they were, they, what they realized was like, we're, we're just, this will, this will be important, or this will be the, a reasonable and safe medication to use for 95 plus percent of the patients that we're going to RSI. And therefore, perhaps instead of carrying five different drugs, what we'll do is we'll carry one and then maybe a second option, but one primary drug. And that's the way we're going to do it for everybody, every time, uh, unless there's extenuating circumstances and leaving some flexibility in there. So it's if, if I th I, when I see these really high-performing systems, these medical pre-hospital systems overseas, them doing things like this, to me, that's like proof of concept that this is probably one of the ways, this is, this is a good idea. That's uh, it, it's fascinating. You know, we we talk about clinical decision making. We want people to be able to do things, but also um, that um, economy of motion and the um, all these other components to say that keep it simple has value. We sometimes try and only go down one road. But we have multiple concepts. I really can envision from the first five things we talked about how you could really make some significant changes to your personal response to things, to your individual truck and your partner, your overall practice and your agency from putting these things together. Mm. Uh, really wild. Uh, and number six, I think we've got a little uh, change here. Uh, I think it's a great finish though. Uh, we're putting a little bit of the affective concept in here in both of these um, and personal concept. Number six, be strong, but compassionate. Yeah, so this is this is one that's recently become near and dear to my heart, especially uh, in the setting of um, a lot of burnout, <laughs> both on the physician, nurse, yeah, uh, paramedic, EMS, uh, firefighter, police side of things with the pandemic and whatnot. Um, looking back on it, I think that the you know a lot of a lot of the time the the culture previously was. 
Um, you know, you got to kind of suck it up and get this job uh, and, and just keep on keep on knocking it out. And uh, you're going to see some bad stuff, but you just got to deal with it. And both in the, on the EMS, civilian EMS side, and on the military side. And I think more and more we're coming to the termination that's probably not good, um, that there is a lot of, um, there's some pretty significant uh, emotional and psychological stress that comes from, you know, wheeling and dealing in a business where people die and um, seeing really bad stuff. And I think that th this came to mind because, um, it's the, our, our patients do come first, but we are important too. And so having maintained the focus and maintaining the ability to finish the mission, to take care of the patient that's in front of you right now, um, but understanding that afterwards, if it is something really bad, that it is totally fine to talk to people about it. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of things like critical incident stress debriefings and whatnot. I think the literature pans that out as well. They're not always the most helpful things, but just talking to friends and sitting down and being able to uh, open up to them, being compassionate to each other and being like, hey man, that was pretty, that was a pretty gnarly call. You want to go out, you know, want to head downtown, grab a drink, talk about it. Um, that sort of understanding I think is, is really important. Um, as well as even in the moment, being compassionate to the people around you. There's been multiple times where we've landed on the scene of a call. This is both in the military and uh, in the civilian world. And there's someone there who's, you know, they're a volunteer, um, they're a new EMT, and they just thought that they are involved in managing a very sick, critically ill trauma patient who's torn to pieces, super jacked up from a motorcycle accident, you name it. And you can see in their face, like they're just totally, totally overwhelmed, totally freaked out. Part of that is being strong in the sense like, okay, if, if this person, I can, I can intervene here to save this person's life. I have to be the one who's going to set the pace and set the tone at this time. But you can't just bowl over everybody else in the back of the ambulance and be like, hey, get your shit together. You know, you need to focus. Part of that is being compassionate and recruiting those people to help you out. So it's like, hey, I, I, I can tell that you're a little overwhelmed right now, and that's okay. And I can tell this is probably like the worst day of your, your you've had on the street, but I need your help right now. I This patient really needs your help. So I, can you please grab that bag of normal saline and spike it for me? Can you please help me out by doing X, Y, and Z and giving them focus, but at the same time being compassionate and kind? So on, on various levels and various time frames, I think being a, that, that duality of being strong strong and focused, but compassionate to yourself and other people is, is really, really important for long-term and short-term yeah. success. I think that's a, a fantastic example. I once had a profoundly hypothermic patient and uh, brought him into the emergency department and they end up starting a femoral line and getting equipment. I knocked that line out and it was hard fought that line. And I'll never forget that doctor looked at me and he composed himself. He goes, that's okay. You know, we'll get another one. But I've also, but I envision getting, you know, yelled at, you know, for that. Mm -hmm. There's a concept of, um, and that, this was 40 years ago. I remember that incident. And then what it meant to me that he was, that he was, you know, decent about it. I think it shows maturity. And I think it shows taking medicine almost to an art form. Mm -hmm. of mastering the whole scene and the people and being able to have that amount of control and composure is something people should really strive for. We sometimes think that we can stand against the wall if we're in the background and let stress bounce off us, you know, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't work. We have to, we have to be in it. And I've had experiences. I'm sure you've had your experiences uh, in all sides of that. 
And I think it's a great time to roll into uh, number seven, that never, ever, ever quit. Absolutely. This was... um... This is obviously something that's hammered into us in the the pararescue career field, but I think it's important. I think it's important across the span of EMS and your career development. If there's something that you're really, really interested and passionate about, and that maybe just be you know changing the way that you treat something in the field or changing one of your treatment guidelines, it may be within your institution, within your organization, whether that's a third party or fire EMS or private ambulance service changing your ability to adapt. So, you know, for example, starting a community paramedicine program, I I don't know, you name it. Um, Or if it's long term in your career, like I want to be an educator, I want to start a bachelor's paramedic program. I, you know, what? I, I love medicine so much, but you know, like I am, I am 40 or 50 or 60. You know what? I want to go to PA school or I want to do something else. Whatever that is, if your heart is in it and you're really, really passionate about it and you think that's going, that you are going to be able to derive joy, that you're going to be able to provide public service, that there's a need for that service, uh, and then you, you can at least live reasonably well off whatever financial revenue comes from that particular thing um, so you can survive and you're not burning the candle at both ends, um, you should do that and you should never, ever, ever, ever quit. Because I can't tell you, there's haters all over the place. People that say, you know, that tell paramedics who, you know, like, you know what, I really, I think I want to be an ICU nurse. I've, you know, I've worked as a critical care paramedic for a while, and I I really think it's cool what they do in the cardiothoracic ICU. Great. Awesome. Go for it. Don't listen to other medics or people that tell you nursing is stupid or you can't do it. You'll be stuck in the hospital. You'll be wiping butts or anything like that. Go for it if that's what you're passionate about. If you want to transition from being a civilian paramedic to going into the military, Go for it. I can't tell you that when I when I first applied uh, to undergraduate school, I was told that um, uh, that I, I probably just wasn't Dartmouth material, <laughs> and, uh, and so I uh, I was like, first of all, this person is supposed to be supporting me and like giving me guidance, and they told me uh, no way, uh, and so I put my mind to it and got in. Uh, when I was when I was trying to get into the pararescue career field, the um, the gentleman in recruiting was like, "Well, you're kind of small to be a PJ, don't you think?" And I was like, "Well, no. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Number one, and two, you screw you. Like, <laughs> you're obviously not a PJ. Like, how, how do you know like what it, what it really takes?" And uh, and along the way, and you know, same thing. Even getting into medical school, I was like, "Oh, it's really hard. You know, it's been a while since you've been an undergrad. Um, I don't know if you, you'll have you know the the academic acumen at this point to really you know survive medical school uh, and uh, and 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 basically overcoming overcoming that as well. And so uh, there's always bumps along the way. I've failed different things, failed uh, exams. And, uh, you know, in, in the pararescue pipeline, I failed dive school once. It's going to be up and down, but just don't quit. If your heart is in it and you want to get there, you want to make a change, you want to, you know, transition your career, do something else or elevate EMS or whatever it is, don't let anybody other, ever tell you otherwise and just don't quit. I I think you finished with something I was thinking as we go, uh, even about bettering EMS. You know, we have ourself and being better. And I love your examples about you know what what do you want to do and to go for it. But then we have to fit in, and we can be a positive part of making our organization better. 
that we can be a part of making EMS better. And if we go out there with that intent to do it and to not quit, it isn't that we won't lose, but in the end of the day, we will have done that. And there is a, a great victory in doing the right thing and in going for it and in not quitting. I think personally, uh, professionally, system and EMS as a, as a whole, I just think that's an outstanding, outstanding message um, to leave people with. Now, what I do at the end of this, we talked about a lot of things and some some pretty good time. We try and do about 45 minutes. We're at 43 minutes here. So I think we certainly can uh, hold our heads high in what we've done. But I'd like to say, give everybody a last word. Uh, we certainly have some deep stuff and some important stuff here. If you were to say, you know, uh, primacy and recency, people remember what's last uh, here. What's the last message you'd leave them with about what we've talked about today, the last word? I would say if I had a final word about all this stuff, it is that these seven things um, were a function of uh, actually the question from uh, from you, Dan, and, and other people about what do you think is important in your career? What would you change in your career? And I think that all of these things, whether it's learning to embrace the gray, deal with these stressful situations, um, understand these concepts of economy of motion, all of these seven things came from this process of um, being introspective and trying to improve myself and applying deliberate practice to get there. And I think that if I could tell people one thing that summarizes all seven of these things, it's that always be curious, always uh, be introspective and self-evaluative and looking at how you can improve, how you can get better, how tomorrow I can get out there, I can get in the ambulance, I can get on the rig, I can get in the helicopter and I can be better than I was today. Um, all of, I, I would say that that is the key concept to improving all of these things and to improving yourself and to helping our patients. All right, Dr. Michael uh, Laurie, this was a, a very powerful 45 minutes to anyone uh, listening uh, above and beyond the, the CE. You've certainly changed my thinking on some things. I'm sure we have for the listeners. Um, I'm very, very grateful for your time. Thank you for being here. Oh, it was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, sir, for having me. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.